Some of us will have arrived at church today really encouraged, really encouraged. Uh, perhaps we've had pretty good weeks, and perhaps spiritually we're encouraged. You've had really good quiet times, uh, you're feeling really positive, uh, you're content, you're spiritually on form. Some of us, however, will arrive disheartened and struggling, disheartened and struggling. Some of us will arrive in the midst of suffering, so maybe that suffering is kind of a traumatic moment that's happened in the last few days, or maybe it's just the, the long grind of long-term suffering. Some of us will arrive really spiritually discouraged by sin, by sin, having lost so many battles with sin this week. So many battles, in fact, that we're doubting if we can keep going as a Christian. We keep battling with the same sins that are coming back to haunt us again and again. Uh, we can echo the words of that hymn that says, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We're so sinful, we feel so broken that surely God's patience is going to run out at some point. Maybe some of us have been discouraged in the last few weeks and months by seeing stories of prominent Christians or people who would have called themselves Christians who have appeared in the media, not just Christian media, but secular media, because they've fallen into scandal um, or they've actually just fallen away from the faith. I'm not saying that so that we can speculate afterwards and gossip about it. I'm saying it because for some of us, those things have been quite shocking because we've, we've read those people's books. I've got loads of their books on my bookshelf at home. We've listened to their sermons. We've looked up to them, and now we see them falling into scandal or we see them falling away and saying, actually, I'm not a Christian anymore. We might think, gosh, if, if that happens to them, what about me? How am I going to keep going? And so tonight, we're going to see some really encouraging truths for any of us who are disheartened, any of us maybe even doubting our salvation, any of us who are doubting if we can keep running the race until the end, for those of us who feel weak and weary. And maybe as you walked into church today through those doors, that is you. Maybe it's not you, but it will be in the future. Maybe in two or three years' time. Maybe this week. Maybe you're on YPF camp. Maybe you're doing fusion and there are some discouragements. Maybe you know some brothers and sisters in Christ who you could encourage with these truths this week as they go through difficulties. And if you're someone who's not a Christian, you're here tonight, fantastic. Thanks for coming. Listen in. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's what God offers us. Uh, this is the last in the series on the Holy Spirit. And uh, we'll um, be spending some time tonight thinking about the seal um, of the Spirit. Uh, that phrase appears in, in verse 13. Um, but we'll do that within the context of, of Ephesians 1, uh, verses 3 to 14. Okay? So the first two points are just going to be general points. In the face of discouragement, what does Ephesians 1 say to us? And then we'll spend a bit longer thinking about the seal of the Spirit at the end. So what does Ephesians 1 say to us if we're discouraged? Here's the first thing that it says. It says, know that you have God's grace and love. Know that you have God's grace and love. Uh, those words and words like them appear many times in our passage, don't they? Uh, so back in verse 2, Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, we are, we're blessed by God. Verse 4, in love he predestined us. Verse 6, he has freely given us his glorious grace. Verse 7 talks about the riches of God's grace. Verse 8, it's grace that he lavished on us. So how does grace and love help us when we're feeling discouraged, when we're feeling weak, when we're even doubting our own salvation? It helps us because it's grace. It's grace. 
it's completely undeserved. It relies entirely on God's initiative and not on us. If the Christian faith as presented in the Bible wasn't about grace, then we'd have every reason to doubt, wouldn't we? And we could all come together tonight and I would say, do you know what? It's right that we're feeling anxious, we're feeling discouraged. It's right that we are doubting whether God's going to accept us if we die tonight or whether God's going to accept us in 40 years' time. And lots of faith systems are like that. So I was thinking about a conversation I had with my colleague, Ruth. Uh, Ruth is uh, someone I, I, I teach in my school. Um, she's an English teacher and a special needs uh, expert. And, and she, uh, she taught RE for a year. Now, she's not an RE specialist, uh, and she's not a Christian. So this is, she's learning a lot of new things, um, and uh, she found lots of it really interesting. And I remember her coming up to me in the staff room one day, and I said, oh, Ruth, how's it going teaching Islam? Because she was teaching Islam to year seven over the period of seven or eight weeks. And she said, the thing about Islam that I'm seeing more and more and more is it's all about doing things. It's all about doing things. You've got the five pillars. You've got Zakah, and you, you have to give money to charity. You've got Salah, you have to pray five times a day. You've got Hajj, you have to go to Mecca once in your lifetime. It's all about doing things. And the thing is that if you are a Muslim who is, can keep all those things perfectly, devoutly, consistently, according to all the laws and the regulations, then maybe you'd have some confidence facing Allah. But no Muslim does that. They know that. They know that even, even the most devout of them make mistakes. And so I've said to some Muslims, uh, when I've done some uh, international outreach, I said, if you die tonight, because that's the kind of question I ask people, it's a bit weird, um, if you die tonight, <laughs> quite more weird, if you die tonight, would you have confidence facing Allah? And they've said to me, no. They said, no, we, we don't have a right to feel confidence. We, we can do all these things, and we're going to do all these things, and we're going to hope that Allah is kind and merciful. But we don't have like, absolute confidence, absolute certainty. It's like uh, school exam results. Some, uh, some genius a few years ago decided to mess up every student and every teacher's summer holidays with exam results today. Results days. Is there anyone here who got results this week? Anyone got results? I had to do um, exam results on Thursday, okay, which meant I didn't sleep Wednesday night. I know you, some of you think that teachers get like 14 months holiday or something ridiculous. Like in, in 12 months, you probably get 14 months holiday, so you have no sympathy for us at all, but just bear with me, okay? So Thursday was results day, and so Wednesday night, I didn't really sleep, and I spent some time meditating on Psalm 23, which is a good thing to do, and a lot of time watching Netflix and eating crisps. Okay? But the reason why, which is not a good thing to do, but the reason why is that you're, you're, you're sitting there, you're thinking, gosh, what are the results going to be? I'm going to get this email in the morning, and it's just going to, there on a spreadsheet, it's just going to show you the results. Students will feel exactly the same. You'll walk in and you'll think, well, I'm going to open this envelope. And I've put in all this effort, but is it going to work? And, and you might be quite confident, but you're never 100%. Wouldn't it be terrible to face the day of judgment like that? Wouldn't it be face terrible to know that you're facing the creator God, the God that, that Trevor's talking about this morning from Psalm 24, and you're not really sure if he's going to accept you or not? And that is what Ruth sensed. Ruth um, sensed that Islam is like that. It's all about doing things, and you don't really have the confidence But she said, actually, I've listened to assemblies and things like that in this school, and Christianity seems different. And I said, yeah, it is. Because Christianity isn't about doing things and worrying that we're not acceptable to God. 
You see, the gospel says we are saved not by what we do, but by what Jesus has done. Every other faith system, even non-faith systems, say do in order to find peace. Do things in order to find peace. And the gospel says it is done. And so if you're a Christian, then you are now adopted to sonship, verse 5. And God the Father is pleased with you in exactly the same way he's pleased with his son, Jesus. And he's perfectly pleased with his son. He's infinitely pleased with his son because his son is perfect. And so if you're someone who is, who's doubting your salvation or just discouraged because of the sins you've committed, when we feel weak and broken and unworthy, we need to remind ourselves of that. Remind ourselves of God's grace. It's not about our performance. It never was. It never will be. What did we sing just a moment ago? Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Because that is what we trust in. We trust in God's love, God's rescue. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing we need to tell ourselves. We are part of God's plan. We're part of God's plan. Again, that theme uh, runs through chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Verse 5, in love he predestined us. Uh, verse, uh, and, and it's in, in accordance with his pleasure and will, according to his plan. Verse 8, it's with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will. And it's according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. Verse 10, to put it into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, here's the plan, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And then have a look at verse 11 with me. Uh, Just really clear on this point. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God has a plan. God has a plan. And you might say, well, lots of people have plans. Uh, Do you remember Baldrick and Blackadder? Uh, Do you remember um, they get in some kind of pickle? And Baldrick would say, I have a cunning plan. And Blackadder would look at him with this sense of frustration and despair because all of Baldrick's plans were rubbish and most of them involved turnips. And, uh, I don't know why. And our plans are hopefully slightly more sensible than Baldrick's and yet they often don't come off, do they? And when they do come off, when you finally reach that goal, often you've had to adapt your plan dozens of times along the way. Well, Ephesians 1 describes a divine plan of God that is constantly moving forwards, constantly moving according to God's will. God says, this is going to happen, and it happens. And that's great news when, we, when we're discouraged, when we're doubting our own salvation, when we're looking at our own weakness, because it is his plan, not ours. If it was our plan, we'd have reason to doubt. But it's God's plan. And all the way through history, God has been showing that his plan keeps working. So we look back to Abraham, and God gives Abraham some promises. And one of them is that he's going to have many descendants. He's going to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham says, yeah, but hang on, I'm really old, and Sarah, my wife, is really, really old, and she's never been able to have children. But a few years later, Isaac is born. It doesn't happen immediately, and there's some sense of kind of confusion and, and doubt and questioning from Abraham and Sarah at points. But if you look back, you can see God kept his plan at the perfect time. His plan kept moving forward. You jump forward to the end of Genesis, and Joseph is in Egypt, and there's a reason why he's in Egypt, and the Israelites end up in Egypt. And Joseph looks at his brothers, who um, who have done uh, lots of bad things, and he says this. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You plan for bad things to happen. But actually, it's all part of God's good plan. 
You see that with Jesus, don't you? Jesus goes to the cross, and, and that was uh, foretold, predicted hundreds of years earlier. Even the way he would die and, and the circumstances around that. And so you've got the Jewish authorities, and you've got the Romans, and they think they are the big players in this scene, and yet actually Jesus is, uh, God is there behind the scenes. He is the director, he is the narrator, he is the playwright. It was all working according to his plan. And that is great news, isn't it? If we are struggling, if we're doubting, if we're discouraged. Because God will carry through on his plan because it's his plan, not ours. If he says he's going to do it, he will. If he says he's going to take us to his new creation, he will. If he says nothing can snatch us out of his hands, that's the case. Verse 4, God will carry through on his plan because it started before the creation of the world. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Uh, the, whole, the whole idea and doctrine of um, predestination is, is, is a big one, it's a complicated one. People have lots of different views on it, and I'm not going to get into it tonight, except to say this, that in my experience, a lot of Christians, when they discuss it, they often see it as a problem. Even if they're Bible-believing Christians and they want to know what the Bible says, it's, it's this kind of awkward thing. Even if it's true, it's this awkward truth that we kind of need to get past. But John Calvin, the the, the reformer who um, obviously um, had very famous views on this, he said it's a great thing for the daily life of a believer. It's a really comforting thing in the midst of hardship and struggle. Because if verse 4 is true, then our salvation was decided before the world existed, before we existed. So God isn't going to turn around tomorrow and look at you and just go, do you know what? I think actually maybe you're not up to being a Christian. Do you know what? Actually, maybe, maybe you're not going to be part of my people. But then I might change my mind again next week. Because God didn't look at you 20 years ago when you became a Christian and thought, yeah, do you know what? Yeah, actually now I'm persuaded. He didn't look at you when you were a child and think, oh, they've got potential, maybe, possibly. It was all decided before the creation of the world, before you even existed. And that is great news, isn't it? Because it is God's plan and God will complete his work in you. And so we need to lift our eyes again to God and go, I'm part of your great plan. In some ways, this has nothing to do with me. But in another sense, everything to do with me because we're recipients of God's grace and mercy. And God's not going to deviate from his plan or abandon it because ultimately it is for his praise and glory. Uh, did you see that phrase come up again, uh, I think, three times in this passage? God isn't going to deviate from his plan. He's not going to abandon his plan because it's the thing that brings him the most glory. So if you are struggling, if you're disheartened, if you're even doubting if you're going to make it, if you're even doubting your salvation, you've got to remember God's grace is based on him and God's great plan Look at what you are a part of. And here's our final point, and this is our kind of longest point. When we're doubting our salvation, when we're really discouraged, when we're feeling weak, we should remember that we are sealed with the Spirit. Sealed with the Spirit. Uh, How do you get that? How do you get the seal of the Spirit? Um, Is it something that you have to apply for? Is it something you have to be part of a certain group or pray in a particular way or know a certain amount of the Bible? The answer is in verse 13. Look down with me. Paul says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So you get the seal of the Spirit when you believe 
the gospel, the gospel of salvation, the good news about Jesus. You get the seal the moment you become a Christian because that is the moment you receive the Spirit. All Christians have the Spirit living in them. He's living and active. And let's just pause for a moment and just, just reflect on that. Just that one fact. If you came in here tonight in, discouraged, just that one fact that God has put his living, active spirit in you, if you're a Christian. That's great news, isn't it? That's great news. It's as if he's breathed his spirit into us. Let me read you um, some words uh, from the end of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, uh, which... Um, uh, lots of you will know the story. Um, uh, Aslan and Lucy and, and Susan um, have, have appeared in this, uh, in this courtyard, um, and the White Witch has turned lots of uh, people um, and animals and various other things into stone. Um, and so they have all these stone statues. And this is what happens. What an extraordinary place, cried Lucy. All those stone animals and people too. It's like a museum. Hush, said Susan. Aslan's doing something. He was indeed. He had bounded up to the stone lion and breathed on him. Then, without waiting a moment, he whisked round, almost as if he had been a cat chasing its tail, and breathed also on the stone dwarf, which was standing a few feet from the lion with his back to it. Then he pounced on a tall stone dryad, which stood beyond the dwarf, turned rapidly aside to deal with a stone rabbit on his right, and rushed on to two centaurs. But at that moment, Lucy said, Oh, Susan, look. Then I'll skip forward a bit. Everywhere, the statues were coming to life. The courtyard looked no longer like a museum. It looked more like a zoo. Creatures were running after Aslan and dancing around him until he was almost hidden in the crowd. Instead of all that deadly white, the courtyard was now a blaze of, of colors, glossy chestnut sides of centaurs, indigo horns of unicorns, dazzling plumage of birds, reddy brown of foxes, dogs and satires, yellow stockings and crimson hoods of dwarfs, and the birch girls in silver and the beach girls in fresh transparent green and the larch girls in green, so bright that it was almost yellow. And instead of the deadly silence, the whole place rang with the sound of happy roarings, brayings, yelpings, barkings, squealings, cooings, neighings, stamping, shouts, hurrahs, songs, and laughter. That is a picture, isn't it, of what God has done for us. Aslan goes around breathing, and they come to life. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is going to say that we were dead in our sin and then raised to life. God has breathed his spirit into each of us. In John chapter 20, verse 22, uh, Jesus gives a similar image. It says he turns to the disciples and he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. That is an amazing truth. If you are here tonight, you have the Spirit, and therefore you have the seal of the Spirit. And you might be a new Christian, uh, or you may, um, you, you may never have encountered this kind of phrasing before. That doesn't matter. You still have it. That's great news. So what does it mean then to have the seal of the Spirit? What does that particular phrase mean? Um, the word seal in the Bible is used in many different uh, ways. Uh, it's a bit like a diamond. There's lots of different angles you can look at it, um, lots of different sides to it. And I think it's going to be helpful to unpack some of the ways in which it is used in the Bible because I think all of them give us an element of, of truth about what the seal of the Spirit is. Um, and so for each of them, we're going to look at a... Um, uh, we're going to look at a particular meaning, and we're going to look at a particular Bible verse that uses the word seal in that way. Here's the first one. Locked in. Locked in. In Revelation 20, verse 3, it says this. It says, He threw him, that's God through Satan, into the abyss, and locked and sealed it over him. 
to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I'm going to neatly sidestep the concept of the millennium, uh, which is a bit controversial, um, and uh, just ask me afterwards if you want to talk about it. Um, but the point here is how the word sealed is used. Okay? So God is locking in the devil. God is sealing up the devil. It's like a permanent thing where he's kind of put in a, in a hole and sealed up. And perhaps that understanding of seal helps us to understand that from the moment someone believes in Jesus with faith that is given them by the Spirit, genuine faith, then that faith is locked in. Their salvation is locked in. It is secure. God is saying, this is now a reality for you. You're a believer. You're one of my children, and you're not going anywhere. It isn't going to be tampered with. It's locked in. It's sealed up. It's the first way. Here's the second way, um, ownership and possession. In Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah buys some land. And uh, God tells him to, and he does it as kind of an illustration. Um, but again, what, what is the meaning of, of the word seal in here? Uh, Jeremiah says, I, seemed, I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. Uh, and so the sealing of the deed is connected with purchasing the land. Because he seals the deed and he signs it, he now legally owns the land. And this seal of having the Spirit shows us we are God's possession. He owns us. It says that in verse 14. If anyone else comes to him and says, you see that person in Chessington? That person who sat there on Sunday nights? That person who's trusting in Jesus? Can I have them? God's going to say, No. They're my possession. And we know, don't we, that if something is someone's possession, it shouldn't be taken from them. Even though, sadly, possessions are sometimes taken from people. Um, I was at the, we were at the Highland Games a few, um, a few weeks ago in Sky. If you ever get the chance to go to Highland Games, I don't think they do them in Chessington, but if you ever get the chance to do them in Scotland, it's worth going to. It's a bit dangerous, but it's worth going to. Um, and it was really packed in. Uh, we were kind of right around the, um, the ringside, um, but uh, it was a really um, big crowd. Uh, and we were next, I was stood next to this teenage girl who I'd never met. Um, uh, but I saw this man squeeze through the crowd, and he walks um, right up just behind her, um, and then I saw his hand go down towards her back jean pocket. And in the back of her jeans uh, was a mobile phone, which is a really bad place to put a mobile phone, right? That's a bit of like, crime prevention advice. Because uh, it was just like, sticking out there, and he went to get it. And as he went to get it, a number of thoughts crossed my mind. Okay? And I think this is the order they crossed my mind. Number one, I thought, that's stealing. That's really bad. And then I thought, someone should do something about that. <laughs> and then I thought, I should do something about that. Then I thought, if I do, and I like, pin this guy to the ground, I'm going to be a hero. And then, I, and then I looked at him and thought, he's really big, and, it, and he's going to knock me out. And then I thought, hang on, we're watching these guys tossing the cable, who are all like six foot seven and massive. Maybe they should detain him. Uh, and then it turned out that it was actually um, her dad, and um, it was, he was doing us a joke. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> the point is, Tell you what, it's a, it's a dramatic 10 seconds of my life. Um, the, um, the point is this, right? Go back to thought one. When you see that, you go, that's, that's wrong. That's her mobile phone. Someone's about to steal her mobile phone. Okay? And, and that's why we have theft laws. But we know, don't we, that people do steal things. It does happen. It's impossible to stop. It's very difficult for police to track down people who've stolen things. Isn't it great that God says we are his possession, and the person who's saying it is God? It's God. No one's going to steal something from God. 
And so we are going to be his possession forever. That's amazing, isn't it? Here's what one writer said. He said, when the Holy Spirit seals believers, he marks them as God's divine possessions, who from that moment on entirely and eternally belong to him. The Spirit's seal declares the transaction of salvation as divinely official and final. Uh, Here's another one, authenticity. Authenticity. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, Paul says, Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Uh, so Paul is saying to, to, to the, those Christians, he's saying, look, I led you to Christ, and, um, and you're kind of a sign of me being an authentic apostle. And it's a bit like um, when a letter was sent from a king. I don't know if we've got a picture here. Um, of a letter being sent from a king to one of his nobles, and he wanted them to know, look, this is really from the king. You need to listen to what is in here. And so there would be hot wax put on there as a seal, and then the king's signet ring would stamp it. It would identify it as the king's. Maybe being sealed with the Spirit is God saying to us, look, there is a work happening in your life. There is work happening in your life, and it's going to carry through to eternity. And do you know what? It's my work. It's a divine work. It's according to a divine plan. And you can know that because I'm putting my spirit in you. He's going to indwell you, and he is my stamp identifying you. And here's the fourth one. Protection and security. Protection and security. Revelation 7 verse 3 says, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Uh, and so within this context, within Revelation 7, the, the, the seal on the foreheads protects them from God's coming wrath. Um, and, and maybe that's what's being said here. That because we have the Spirit, we have God's protection. Protection from God's wrath, but also from, from evil, from the devil, from this world. God isn't going to allow us to be uh, taken by evil if he's given his Spirit. And so Paul can say at the end of Romans 8, he can say, if God is for us, who can stand against us? There you go, four meanings of the word seal. And I think all of them are, are, are true. All of them are truths about the Spirit. And here, here's two more words that Paul uses to help us understand what the Spirit is for us. Paul says, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. It's the first word, deposit deposit. When you hire something, uh, you sometimes have to uh, put down a deposit. Okay? So if you've ever experienced doing crazy golf at Word Alive, you've had to put down a deposit. If you haven't done crazy golf at Word Alive, you're not missing out. It's, it's, it's not Augusta. Um, but uh, even with that, and even with the fact that it is a campsite full of Christians, they still don't trust us. Okay? And so they give you these really bad, these really dodgy, cheap putters, but you still have to put down five pounds. And what you're saying is, here's five pounds, I'm going to take the putters. And they say, great, when you bring the putters back, when you bring the golf balls back as well, we will give you the five pounds back. Once you've done it, once you've completed it, and we get our stuff back, then you can have your deposit back. You can't turn up halfway through and go, do you know what, we've still got another four holes to go, and, uh, and we're going to keep going, but can we just have the deposit back now? They're going to say, no, finish what you're doing. <laughs> yeah? And then you can get the deposit back. If you, um, the, the, the putters are not very expensive, and um, they're, yeah, they're, they're pretty ropey. But if you go for a test drive of a car, 
then you might be asked to leave your driving license or your passport or your credit card because it's of more value, isn't it? What is God saying by putting the Holy Spirit in us as a deposit? I think two things we can take out of this. One is, look at the deposit he puts in. He puts his spirit in. So God must really care about this. He must think this is of immense value. It's incredible, isn't it, when we actually look at our lives, when I look at my life and think, gosh, I'm so broken and weak and dirty and unworthy that God would put his spirit in as a deposit. And here's the second thing, the really big thing. God's going to complete the job. He's going to complete the job. If you turned up tonight and you're thinking, I'm not sure I can keep going. But God said, look, I've put down a deposit here. I'm going to complete the job. The job's going to be done. And here's our second word. The Spirit is a guarantee. It's God saying, I've started these things. The plan is underway. Look back. Look back all the way back to Genesis uh, and, and, and Adam and Eve and promises there in Genesis chapter 3 and through Abraham and everything else and even stuff in your own life. And you can see, look, you've, I've been doing this plan. You can see that I've never failed in my promises. But on top of that, the Spirit is a guarantee that I will complete the job. I'll finish it. Paul says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We have the Spirit until our ultimate redemption when Jesus returns, when God's plan is complete, when all those he has chosen have believed. Our inheritance, our treasure, what we were singing about earlier, our eternal life with Jesus and the new creation we're going to be in, that cannot be lost It is guaranteed in the the truest sense of the word. So tonight, are you someone who walked through those doors and you are struggling? Struggling with just being a Christian? Struggling with looking at how weak you are? Struggling with with doubt? Struggling whether God really accepts you? Feeling weak and stumbling and helpless? I wonder if Satan has prodded you this week and has said, you're not good enough for God. Look at your sin. God's going to leave you. Are you weary in the fight? You've been fighting for a long time now and you're just tired and thinking, do you know what? Maybe I'm not going to make it into the end. But what have we seen in this passage? Remember God's grace and God's love is based on that, on him, not on us. Remember God's great plan and remember we have the seal of the Spirit. This is God's authentic work. This is God who's locked in our salvation. It's God who's going to protect us and we are God's possession. The Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what is coming. That's a great encouragement if you're discouraged here. If you're not a Christian, you're here tonight, then think about these words. That is the offer that God gives. And this is genuine Christianity. There's a lot of stuff that that is peddled as Christianity, that we, we, we think is Christianity. This is genuine Christianity. This is what God says he does for Christians. Why don't we bow our heads and... Have just a moment of quiet. And what do we think about things we want to take away from this passage? Things that we want to ask God to help us believe this week? Things that we maybe want to encourage others with? Maybe things from this, this whole series on the Spirit that we would like to remember and to build upon. Let's just have a moment of quiet.
Let me read some words from Philippians 2 and then I'll pray for us. Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Father, we long to live more for the Lord Jesus. We long to have a a greater sense of the weightiness of his kingship in our lives, as we were thinking about this morning. Father, we long to not resist or quench or grieve the Spirit by what we think or say or do. We long to be more effective as we go out on mission. Please help us in all of those things. Help us to battle sin this week. Help us to put Jesus first. But thank you that even as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we remember that it's you who works in us through your spirit to will and to act in order to fulfill your good purpose. Thank you for your great plan. Thank you that it doesn't depend on us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that our salvation doesn't depend on us. Thank you, Father, for the Spirit. Please, Father, would we take great confidence away from this passage and great thankfulness to you for all that you have done. We do not deserve it. You are a great and generous God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.